Welcome to episode 64 of The People on Kei Chung, 1630 AM. I'm Ben White. And I'm Matthew Timmons. Our guests this episode are Dorothy Hoover and Emily Mast. Dorothy Hoover is an artist and set designer working in the theater and art worlds in Los Angeles. I went back to model making, which was always my favorite thing to do as a set designer, and then treating that like its own art form. But I think because I am from the performance world, that nothing ever feels finished. Even though I have these pieces in a gallery on a pedestal, that doesn't mean that their life is over. It's just that everything I make can change. Emily Mast is an artist living in Los Angeles who works across the art, theater, and dance worlds. I feel like one of the things that has been driving my practice lately has been this conviction that I can learn something from everyone, whether that person is a six-year-old child or my neighbor or Sue from the pool. Dorothy Hoover's exhibition, Make Lover Return, is currently up at General Projects Gallery in Lincoln Heights. And if you're listening to this episode as it airs, then you're in luck. The show runs until August 12th, 2018. And you can find out more information at insertblancpress.net. And later in the show, we'll hear from Los Angeles band Flatworms. The People features the voices and ideas that make up the cultural landscape of Los Angeles, the West Coast, and beyond. It's like a broken record, magically repaired. Dorothy Hoover and Emily Mass, welcome to The People. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you guys for being on the show. Thanks for having us. So the two of you both uh, straddle kind of art worlds, dance, theater, set design, poetry. Um, Tell us what it's like to work in these different contexts all at the same time. Well, I should say that Dorothy coined that term. Um, She called us straddlers at her opening, and I thought that was a really great phrase and one that I plan on borrowing from now on. Yeah, it's it's so it's actually I've been thinking a lot about terminology lately. So I mean, when it comes to my own practice, I've been thinking about model versus set versus installation versus sculpture, and so how I wanted to describe myself within the two primary worlds that I straddle, and I think it came from um, the idea of being a slasher. So when you're in, when you're a model slash actress slash mm-hmm reality, you know, star or whatever, you're called a slasher. And so I think Straddler. In like popular media. Yeah, popular okay. media. media. So I think Straddler, I think, came from that. Um, because it can get exhausting. I think sometimes talking about being a multidisciplinary artist. Because I think sometimes people don't want to... If you say that you're in the theater world... Uh, somebody from the art world, I think, can then uh, uh, try and knock you down. Try and knock you down. Mm-hmm. And then in the theater world, if they say you're from the art world, they have a preconceived notion about you. And so I, I think I'm, I'm always searching for ways to describe what I do. Mm-hmm. And Straddler, I guess, just came out of somewhere. I remember I gave a lecture a couple years ago where the title of the lecture was How to Be a Professional Amateur. Um, because I, I never, I hadn't come up with this term straddler. I just thought of it as how to do a whole bunch of things, but not super well, (laughs) Uh which is how I think of my practice. And I call on people who are really good at what they do to assist me in, um, things that I might not know how to do, like, uh, choreography Mm -hmm. sometimes or video editing. Yeah, I was, 
I was actually thinking about that with your work. Um, so how I, bad I am at things. Yes, exactly. <laughs> no, your your community or your collaborators. Um, I mean, I've always said that I work with actors because I can't do what they do, and so they're they're, they're a precious resource for me. They're a material. They're a skill. They're a talent. Um, but I've moved away from working with actors recently. And when I was looking at some of your work today, um, I see this list of collaborators and I see this list of, of actors and musicians and, and also and dancers and all of this stuff. And, and you just seem to be really good at navigating communities, which I think helps you exist within multiple worlds. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I feel like one of the things that has been driving my practice lately has been this conviction that I can learn something from everyone Mm -hmm. whether that person is a six-year-old child or my neighbor or Sue from the pool um or you know an art history historian or like everybody has some form of knowledge that I don't Mm -hmm. and I kind of take that seriously that drives a lot of what I do yeah I mean I think coming from the theater world you, you have to recognize that early on. So I, I'm not, I don't know anything about lighting design. I think it's actually one of my fail, failures of being a set designer is that I never spent a lot of time with lighting. So I have to have lighting. I have to have a director. I have to have a sound designer. Mm. And I think I do bring that to my art practice when I can. How do you describe what you do to your great aunt? I don't know. Who knows nothing about art? <laughs> or like, or like, uh, you know, um, the guy who changes your oil. Um, I usually, these days I say I'm an artist and that I make sculptures. <laughs> Which doesn't seem totally, no. like, complete. I still don't feel comfortable calling the pieces that I've been making recently sculptures. Mm-hmm. I don't think that it's a word that really actually excites me. Also, and it's not because I'm, I'm not using it because I feel insecure about them being sculptures. I just I don't really, I don't know. The term doesn't do it what do you, for me. What do you call them then? Models. Okay. Do you feel like if you call them sculptures, you are entering into a history that you don't feel sort of prepared to have a discourse with? Maybe. Because I feel like I do the same thing. I mean, I'm asking that because that's what mm-hmm. I do. Is you know, I might make a painting in a performance, but I hesitate and sort of actually more like refuse to call it a painting because I'm wary of of kind of having a discussion about the history of painting right. when the 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 history that really interests me is the history of performance more than anything in theater. But what about the word play? And, the word play? Yeah. My favorite. <laughs> Both as a it? noun and a verb? Everything about it, yeah. Um, uh, do I call my work plays? No. The one I'm working on now, I do, um, because I worked with a playwright and wrote a, a, a series of scenes, and so it's a deconstructed play. It's a conceptual performance. Um, I think it's the first time I've used that term. Deconstructed play or conceptual performance? Um, just the word play. Play. I think oh, okay. I, I believe, maybe my thesis show I would have called a play as well. Um, and the sort of bookends, that was like one of the earliest performances. And now this 
latest one, which is called The Seed Eaters, um, both have text. And in the middle of the things that have happened between the two, the text was very abstract. Do you, I've always wondered with your work how, like what the role of text was. Mm -hmm. And are there plays sort of driving the models? Like I'm talking about like the last few years of, like the last two shows I saw of yours with the models. Uh, Yes. And I think that there was some, the work that was done before I zeroed in on a text that I I don't think was as strong. Um, I I think that as a set designer, my role is as an interpreter of text. Um, And it's a role that I'm comfortable with and it's a role that excites me too. So um, when I started making these models and it's actually been uh, for this body of work and, and the most and the last body of work that you saw at William Levitt's studio was centered around the Oristaya, which is a text that I've been working with for probably about two years. And I think it's going back. So when I started grad school as a set designer, we start with Greek tragedy, and then you move through the history of theater. And w- when I started returning to object making, I'm making air quotes right now, um, Maybe returning to Greek tragedy felt right. Hmm. Um, but I also think that, I mean, those stories and the interpretations and the translations uh, that are available to us right now, I, I, I just, I, I love working with that. And the, and the So the, the show that I just saw, sorry to interrupt you, yeah. was in direct response to this play. I don't know if direct response is correct. It's a response. Mm-hmm. Uh, and all of the pieces are sort of nodding to that text. Yeah. So I could go through and point out little little details of each that relate to the text, but I don't but then again I I'm not sure how interesting that is because it isn't a one to one. Well, Dorothy, we're you and I are both big fans. Well, everyone's a big fan of Ann Carson because mm-hmm. she's the greatest. Yeah. Um, <laughs> but well, she's, I am. she's a person that uh, works with mythology, Greek mythology, yes. often times, in in a unique way. Like, what is it about the way that she uses mythology that that appeals to you, or that you're also like borrowing from? Mm-hmm. Maybe. Well, I I read her translation of Agamemnon, and uh, and it's called an Oristia as opposed to the Oristia, and I think that I mean I think she's so bold. I don't I can't speak. Greek, I don't translate Greek, but her um, boldness with the text is really exciting. So if you compare the Anne Carson translation and the Robert Lowell translation, both of them are poets. Um, And I love Robert Lowell's translation. I think it's much better than other translations, but Anne Carson, um, I don't know, she's so ballsy. Um, And she, uh, I think she sees the Greeks, the Greek um, playwrights as contemporaries, of, as modern, art, as, as artists. And so she, um, as artists, she can relate to. So she can give them a voice that speaks to today as opposed to treating them like they're precious. And would you say that you're doing a similar thing? I mean, it seems like that's what you're doing in the show at General Projects. It's like, Yes, you're nodding towards this kind of the historical, but the models that you made are, which the three of them you refer to as the Furies, mm-hmm. and they represent more of like almost 80s architectural 
spaces, mm-hmm. it makes them it makes it much more contemporary. I guess I, I mean I hadn't thought about that, but <laughs> I suppose so. I mean, you know, there's this history of set design, you know, especially with Shakespeare, where I was actually just talking about this with my dad, um, where you take a Shakespearean text, Hamlet or something, or Macbeth, and you uh, set it in Africa in 1890, or you set it in Australia in 1700, or you set it in America in 1930, and the set is updated and the costumes are updated, but there's not really any uh, substance around the change of scenery or change of time. Um, so I think that it's important to, when you take these, when you want to keep moving forward with ancient texts, that you have to, you have to somehow maybe be more referential and more diluted with your references than just simply updating it or simply translating it. And I think maybe Anne Carson is more of an interpreter than a translator. And I think Hmm. set design, when it changes time periods, it's more successful when it's interpreting the text in the time period as opposed to just adapting it. Does that make sense? Yeah. This kind of like brings me back to something I was curious to ask you about regarding something you said a few minutes ago which Mm -hmm. is that when you're working on set design you're translating a text Mm -hmm. and where does the director for example fall in that um in that uh uh, solar system of because I think that's one of the things I'm always struggling with is figuring out what my role is in making a piece whether I'm you know, when you're working with people in theater, they need to know who's the director, or they want to know who's the director and who's the um, set designer and the costume mm-hmm. designer, et cetera. So I'm really curious about when you are a set designer, how much freedom do you have? Or like, like, do you know what I mean? Or yeah. Are you working closely with the director yeah. often? I or mean, is I, that coming from, is that totally your vision and you're off on your own? Mm-hmm. I mean, I definitely want to come back to that in your work too like your your connection with the word director your connection with the word choreographer your connection with the word actor even Mm -hmm. um but for now answering that question it is a case-by-case basis um because it isn't always black and white in theater which i think is important for people to remember it's that sometimes the creative team are more collaborators and then sometimes they're more uh people who work with the director Mm -hmm. I think I can blame my mentor, Chris Bereka, at CalArts for making me want to be an individual artist because he basically tells us that the set designer is basically a second director and that we should proceed as thus, whether or not the director agrees with us or not. A second director or like is that is that a hierarchy that he's setting up or is he, he saying he this? Is, okay. definitely setting up a hierarchy. Uh-huh. Um, and that's another thing about theater. That there is, that, even though you want it to be really collaborative, the yes. that there is, <laughs> there definitely is, unless I'm sure there's, I mean, even with the Wooster group, you know, it's like Elizabeth Lecomte is probably number one, mm-hmm. right? Um, but uh, the, the continuing relationships that I have with directors are relationships where I work with them because they know that I can change their mind and then I can offer visuals and and also actor action, and uh, uh, what's actor action? 
So a set isn't necessarily a sculpture on stage. It's something that the actor has to interact with. Mm. Like if you just think of it like a plinth or a sculpture that like cuts through the theater, I don't know how well you're serving the play. Mm-hmm. So as a set designer, I like to make everything, everything that I make has a potential for the actor to use hmm. within the action of the text. Um, and See, so I would call those sculptures to be activated. I mean, you could call them. <laughs> I mean, go ahead. I think it. a lot of I think a lot of set designers would like you to call those mm-hmm. to, to call them that. Um, and I think maybe in Europe, it it's a little different. In the, meaning that they they're more readily, um, like set designers looked at it more as like sculptures. Yeah, that that I was just gonna say um, that this. Um, writer and uh, curator Marie de Bougerol, who's French, writes about this. Mm-hmm. And um, in French, they're called the, I think it's les objets morts. When, when they're not being activated, it's dead objects. And when mm-hmm. they're activated, they're works of art and they're sculptures. And so that's sort of like a, something that she's written extensively about and has curated shows about. Yeah. See, that's amazing. And we don't I, I don't I didn't know about that and and a lot of I have the book I'll I'll lend it to I you. Wanna, <laughs> I want to read it. I think it might be in French, but <laughs> <laughs> um, but yeah, th- uh, the- theater design isn't looked at in the same way in America. Mm-hmm. Um, and I, I I don't have references like you do because it's like almost like a mythology. It's like well, if you go to Europe and you're a set designer, you'll be treated like an artist. Mm-hmm. I promise you. Any any artist is treated better, I think, in <laughs> Europe than they are here, just automatically. You're listening to The People on K-Chung, 1630 AM. I'm Matthew Timmons. And I'm Ben White. Remember, you can find us on iTunes or Stitcher or SoundCloud or anywhere else where you get your podcasts. And now back to our conversation with Dorothy Hoover and Emily Mast. Uh, I wanted to revisit the role that you play and the role that you see yourself uh, in your performances, especially when you have a lot of other people, when you have musicians or sound designers, people who actually do your sets too. Like I know the one that was just um, the seed eaters mm-hmm. had people who made the sets mm-hmm. and how you see your role. If you're a director, if you're a facilitator, if you're an artist. And then I'm also, I think that this is maybe a different question, how you see your presence within a lot of your performances because it's something that I've noticed that you're you're always present. Mm-hmm. Unfortunately. Whether it's in, <laughs> you know, whether it's in the live performance or if it's in the documentation. Yeah, yeah. Um, well, okay. I see myself as an artist because I feel like the term artist is the only one that really c- kind of encompasses mm-hmm. all those different roles. An artist can be more or less anything, mm-hmm. um, depending on who you ask. So that tends to be the go-to term that I work with. Unlike a lot of artists who work with performers, um, I don't really care if you call me a director. Mm-hmm. I'm, I don't, I'm not allergic to that term. Um, I, I really vividly remember working with Jose Luis Blonde at LACMA on a show. He's the curator who mm-hmm. I was working with. And somebody referred to me as a director, and I didn't even blink. I just kept talking. And he kind of was like, wait, 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 hold on. You you didn't correct them. <laughs> you seemed okay with that term. Is that is that true? I'm just kind of shocked because I've never seen an artist react that way. And I said, yeah, it doesn't. I think I'm 
whatever works in the context, um, that's fine with me. And I say in that context, meaning like if it's going to help the people that I'm working with because they're used to a theatrical context, if it enables them to kind of better understand the situation than, that they're in, then I'm all for it. If that's what they need, that's fine. Um, do I tell people who work in theater that I'm a director? No, definitely not. Um, I tell them I'm an artist. But, it, it, you know, I think I'm pretty comfortable going by a number of mm. terms. I think that comes back to the word that I use, straddler, which I, I don't think can be used for a lot of different people, but I think uh, when I use that term, I, I'm referring to a lot of artists such as yourself and you know maybe Asher Hartman, where there is this acceptance of looseness or mm-hmm. uh, allowing yourself to be a director or allowing yourself to be an artist and not being so rigid when it comes to the terminology. Yeah, I would say it's openness rather than looseness because I openness. know for a fact that neither Asher nor myself are very loose because when I think of the word loose, I think of... I immediately think you kind of are, are open to losing control. Mm-hmm. And I, 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 I think the reason why I'm so present is because I can't let go of control despite trying in my work constantly to let go. It's very hard for me. Um, I actually do really wish and I try to be less present in the work. Um, there are moments like with uh, the piece End Again that was at Night Gallery where I purposefully put myself in the piece and I'm on stage and I'm directing live where that's a very um, uh, purposeful decision. But then there's also things like The Seed Eaters, uh, which is a piece about hierarchy that really questions and and tries very actively to dismantle hierarchy, um, where, for example, I was looking at the footage of the piece in Graz, Austria, and I saw my grinning face way too many times and so when I restaged it in France last month I made sure to sort of just really I I told um, my collaborator Rachel to do this sign like that looks like I'm buttoning up uh, my shirt towards the neck which just meant if I'm looking too involved do the sign do the button up sign and I'll like calm down because I just get so into the thing Um, I tend to be like front row grinning and I Mm -hmm. it's embarrassing (laughs) <laughs> I, I I don't know if this is like a little bit fangirl, but I am always so impressed with your documentation of your performances because it, it, it's something that uh, with my past performances, I've always neglected mm-hmm. and just hoped that I would get it. Yeah. And for you, it seems like it's part of the process. It's definitely part of the process. From the beginning, from the very beginning. I don't think it is from the very beginning. I mean, it's always, um, it's very intentional that that's sort of, that, that a place is made for the documentation mm-hmm. in budgets and sort of um, just, it's it's on my mind, but it's usually in the back of my mind until very close to the performance. Um, and it's, it's, again, one of these situations where I'm working with somebody who really knows what they're doing. So I'll be working with a videographer. I don't film it myself. Um, and that's more selfish than anything because I want to I mean the best part of making performance is being able to experience it live as an audience member um, and then I work with editors as well 
Um, but really, the, all of the people that I work with, I am really in their business. Mm-hmm. So, uh, and and it's a real collaboration. So I I'm very rarely just going to work with a lighting designer and say go do your thing. It's usually a long conversation, and it's not about me. Or I'd like to think that it's not about me trying to like control the thing as much as I really love to learn from these people and I love the dis I actually love disagreeing with people <laughs> I really do I really love like you know talking about why we disagree about something I think you learn a lot um I mean the reason why I, I this is a totally off subject but I proposed to my husband after an argument because I was like, "Oh, this is how we get through things. This is this like this is exciting to me." Um, so yeah, I think I don't know if that answers your question, but I don't know. You sound kind of like a director. <laughs> 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 yeah, yeah, but I I think maybe I do maybe I I, I function in that way, but I really. I really, really um, disagree with the hierarchy that I have witnessed in theater. And so I think that's something, like, if, if I am a director, then I am a director who questions hierarchy. Right. Yeah. And, and that's, uh, that is just something that, uh, that's kind of always on my mind. Yeah. But you also said, uh, kind of off mic in other conversation, that you bring a certain naivete mm-hmm. uh towards certain aspects of some of the projects you do. And do you think that that, and you talked about it in a way that seemed as if it's a, you think of it as a, an advantage yeah. on some level, right? Yeah, on some level, yeah. I mean, because you're talking about, like, uh, you were saying earlier, like, uh, you know, you're happy to argue with the lighting director to figure, you know, because you are going to learn something. Yeah, in I, that. I feel like there's something really incredible about being in the space of not not being of being a beginner mm-hmm. um and i think in some ways the work is is i mean i work with people who've never performed often mm-hmm. yeah. because that that very uh specific sort of liminal space of being a beginner is kind of precious yeah and something that i love i love to witness someone on stage anyway learning something and thinking through it if that makes sense absolutely and then for yourself uh, uh like autopilot's the least interesting thing absolutely to watch. absolutely and so like yeah. being a beginner if you're uh or being new to incorporating certain aspects into your own work that makes it uh i mean i'm sure a much more like uh generative process yeah in trying to like figure out what oh well what what are we what are we actually doing here because mm-hmm. frankly i'm not sure you know but let's figure it out kind of thing yes yeah or? and there, i mean i guess also for if we were to take like video editing for example sure um there are aspects of that which i adore like the the sort of compositional aspect of editing i i get really excited about just artistically that's super exciting for me the technical side of things i don't want to know anything about it <laughs> and people are you know they'll talk me through it and i'm and i kind of i do flip a switch and that switch is off i'm thinking about something else do you know what i mean like yeah. i i that's it's like a it's almost like a coping mechanism for ways to keep 
the freshness in a practice that I have decided is going to encompass so many different areas. Sure. So yeah, there's a decision to sort of remain naive, I would say, which I would never have admitted a few years ago, I think. But that, I mean, that that goes a long way into breaking down any sort of the bad aspects of the hierarchy that you were talking about, right? Mm -hmm. Like, I mean, the worst parts of the hierarchy is I know everything. I know how everything is going to go. This is how things will go. Right. And I don't want to hear your opinion. Exactly. Because it probably isn't pertinent, which, you know, I worked on a piece in 2015 with this little girl who's 10 years old. Almost everything that came out of her mouth was incredibly intelligent. I remember the other actors who were, you know, professional dancers and actors. We would all kind of get silent and, like, take a deep breath and be like, she's done it again. (laughs) she's teaching us a lot Um, because she's a beginner and she's like open to talking through life as she's discovering it and that was really precious for that project right and god forbid we go one podcast without mentioning asher harvin but uh, (laughs) many times because we can't do that but i mean that's that's his bag too yeah right definitely yeah definitely yeah i mean the hierarchy is the hierarchy but you know, when a play opens, everyone is listed. Everyone gets their due, right? And so I think that... In the theater world. Yeah. yeah. And so it's, like, important when we move into this world where there's an artist, but then there's all these other people. Like, one of the things... I just went to the uh, Made in L.A. show at the Hammer, and one of the things that I was so impressed with was that all the fabricators, not on every single piece, but on a lot of the, a lot of the artists work like all of the fabricators were thanked and listed mm. which is never I've never seen that actually yeah, that's before a new thing. Yeah, that's yeah. a very new thing that's I think. Very, and I think yeah. that it's like when other artists start using the theater and start using theater tropes and they use lighting designers and they use like everybody gets their due and mm-hmm. film and video I mean mm-hmm. so many artists I mean especially made in LA there's so much film and video in there you know it it seems normal I mean, at least from the film world, to list all the people mm-hmm. that worked on it. But, uh, but yeah, in the art world, uh, you don't typically list all the assistants, all the... I'd, I'd like to see that happen more often. Right, um, which I think you do. Yeah. And I think that... Well, the, the Seed Eaters, this piece that I keep bringing up that kind mm-hmm. of really actively... This is the deconstructed play that actively is, you know, try, dealing with hierarchy. Um, on the outside of the exhibition space where it was first shown in Austria we had covered up the entire sort of front vitrine with the names of every single person who was involved in the making of the piece whether it was my mom and dad who came in and helped watch my child whether it was the translator whether it was the the uh, constructor who built the wooden sets there, there was, I mean, it was a long list of names. Um, and my name was among everyone else's name. Um, it was one of, you know, maybe 50. And that was a really, really important um, gesture for me because it's very, it's very symbolic, but it's also like, um, it's sort of insisting on the importance of everyone who's mm-hmm. who's worked on the project and in a very real way. And people yeah. were... Um, I think they were they were it meant a lot to a lot of the people that and were it's very real i like I like that that kind of practice like doesn't um like create mystery and like in this way that is like you know 
It's it's very real. It's reality. This is what actually went into this. Mm-hmm. And it, as a viewer, I think it tends to like give you more entry points to understand like everything that went into something. Yeah. As opposed to the you know the the our twentieth century hangover with the you know myth of the genius artist kind of thing. Well, I think it's very hard. I mean, logistically, I, like I I I I think it's. It's very hard not to have things, not to kind of give responsibility to an artist. Absolutely. Because you can't list every one of those people on the website, for example, at the, you know, the URL. Or, so Certainly, yeah. It definitely has, I, I keep kind of bumping into the logistical problem of insisting that everyone gets thanked because the institutions, no matter how open they are, are resistant to it because they want to be able to attribute it to the artist who might be more well known or might bring mm-hmm. you know so that which is dumb i mean that's totally because it's just a list of names you know it's like but when you're trying to sell a ticket mm-hmm. for a show I guess if that's that true. show we, is by yeah. 45 people <laughs> right <laughs> right and then I and I have to admit that like I do feel like I'm I'm doing the music with Linda and I'm doing the sets with Lucas and I'm you know I'm directing I mean, you're the with reason Rachel. That everybody's here. Well, right? of course. And so so yeah. I do. Yeah. That's and, why everyone's getting thanked. And if it's shitty, were... I think I should take responsibility for it yeah. as well. Right. And so there's there's that. So I'm I'm I mean the, the problem with dismantling hierarchy is you can't totally do it. It's like with activism, if nobody takes responsibility. Um, it's going to be very difficult to register voters. Somebody's got to like say, okay, we're doing it this day and I'm going to drive. Yeah. Um, True that. You're listening to The People on K-Chunk, 1630 AM. I'm Ben Way. And I'm Matthew Timmons. And remember, you can find us anywhere that you find podcasts. Just search for The People Radio. You can find us on iTunes, Overcast, Stitcher, Google Podcasts. And if you are at any of those places and you have the opportunity to leave us a rating or a review or both, please do that. It really helps us uh, helps us bring attention to the podcast and gets more listeners. That'd be great. Thanks so much. And now back to our conversation with Dorothy Hoover and Emily Mast. So Dorothy, when we were at General Projects, I remember you kind of mentioning because we were distracted there was a lot of people there and um but I do remember you mentioning uh that it was a desire of yours to kind of um make your maquettes or what your your models in one-to-one scale and I've been thinking about that that was a few weeks ago and I've just been wondering what especially since you talk about corporate 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 corporal presence Corporality, though, is the word that was in corporal, corporal presence, corporal yeah, presence that was in yeah. the press release. And so I was just wondering, like, what, how would that change things for you, and how would um, changing the scale of your work, like, what, what would you be interested in seeing with that shift? Mm-hmm. Well, I mean, I think that term, this idea of a, an absence of corporal presence has been important to me since I stopped making performance, which I've stopped. I think the last performance I had was in 2016. Mm-hmm. When I I started making objects when I got a studio, basically, when I, was, when I stopped making work out of my bedroom. And 
it was a really hard switch for me. And I think you would actually come to the studio, open studio that I had where I had made these like giant sculptures. Mm -hmm. And you would ask me if they, if, um, you, if I wanted actors on them. Mm-hmm. And my whole thing was no. Mm-hmm. I don't have actors right now and I'm not, I'm only making work uh, in their absence. And I don't want to go back and, 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 and say that the work that I made in their absence is somehow better with them. And so then once I started, then when I switched to making large sculptures back to the model form, which felt like a really natural thing for me to do. Like I, I often talk about how the large sculptures felt like chore, mm-hmm. almost like it comes back to like the idea of like making sculpture, quote unquote. Uh, and and it just, it, it felt like I was trying too hard in mm-hmm. a sense. And then I went back to model making, which was always my favorite thing to do as a set designer. And then treating that like its own art form. Mm-hmm. And it felt... Um, Almost like the romantic idea of an oil painter, this like looseness, like you grab a paintbrush and you can just go for it. Like for me, making those models, which to a lot of people I think look like they're very time consuming and tedious and very small, like to me feels very natural. It feels like being a painter. Mm -hmm. Um, And so I really do want to treat those pieces as singular objects. But I think because I am from the performance world, that nothing ever feels finished. And so even though I have these pieces in a gallery on a pedestal, that doesn't mean that their life is over. So, so when I said that it would be amazing to make them life scale, it wasn't that I had planned to make them life scale when I made them. Mm-hmm. It's just that everything I make can change. Hmm. So a lot of those pieces in general projects, I had actually been in the studio and I had all these other models sitting around and I just just took from these models and I destroyed them because to me this precious idea of a sculpture is not something that I'm actually interested in Mm -hmm. so I don't really you know those pieces that I showed I don't really want to destroy them I mean I think they (laughs) I don't want to do that but I think a lot of the pieces that I do make can be destroyed or they can take a new life and so those pieces like the I made this piece that has this like huge elevator and staircase like if I made that life scale I mean I think that would be amazing right um but I mean one of the reasons that I saw as 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 not necessarily a sculpture but as and like what if it was does it take on a new life if it becomes I mean one to one yeah I mean could it have like could Agamemnon the play be performed on that could you know the the libation bearers be performed on that maybe Mm -hmm. I mean that I don't know like I don't I haven't gotten that far that was my fantasy. Yeah. Was like if if they do get, you know, blown up, can we can we <laughs> kind of enter into this like all encompassing landscape and see a play performed yeah. in there and what does that I mean cuz they're pretty they're pretty um ambitious mm-hmm. architectural, you know, environments. Um, well, how do you, Emily, how do you deal with it? I mean, like when in your performances, they're theatrical set pieces. Mm-hmm. Like when you design those, do you, do you make a model? Or when I mean, you're thinking about human interaction inside of those. I've never made a model in my life <laughs> um, because I'm a terrible sculptor. 
so I have a really hard time translating two dimensions into three dimensions. So what I do is I work with someone who knows what they're doing, and I and I describe something, and then they draw it, and that is how it gets built. So right. they, I, you know, um, but I guess. I just, I, I, for me, I what I heard was it seemed to me almost like maybe the the, when you said that I interpreted as, this, model isn't necessarily the the, end all be all to this, piece. It could be something, else, and I kind of, I've been thinking about it because I love them as they are, mm-hmm. and I don't want them to be anything else, mm-hmm. and somehow, this corporal presence I think that I feel it more because of the scale like this idea that you're like peering into this little world and you're completely aware of your body and how it doesn't fit in there um you can't take it for granted and were you able to enter into it in you know in in real space I'm just not sure I would be thinking about the same things that I'm thinking about Mm -hmm. um there's just something, uh, I don't know, I, I, I really love the scale. And I, for me, I love, I see them as sculptures, mm-hmm. definitely. There's no hesitation in my mind that they're, like, that's just how I interpret them. Um, but I also, you know, kind of believe and support work that, or, you know, I also make work that, that is sort of not archival and... Um, I think that's kind of what you were referring to before about performance and um, it being something that's never finished. Mm-hmm. So, Well, I think also the models that you're making, I mean, while they have like specific kind of architectural elements, I think the models that you are making also have all these other elements that are really important that kind of like assist the viewer in imagining themselves in a space. There's like a little boom box in a corner there's a broom there's a pile of oranges there's all these other elements that are all, that also take it outside of them just being models yeah. that are thematic elements that like give you i don't know uh someone that was at the show said like i've never been able to imagine myself in a space so easily as as these models and i think because you have they're not just it's really important that it's not just like an 80s mall architecture thing that you're doing. Right. There's so many other things happening in those in those pieces that that even you were like kind of rearranging constantly, I feel like. And like you said, pulling from other models and destroying other models you had made to bring them into these spaces. So it's like you're not just imagining like an architectural space. You're imagining a theatrical space. You're I feel like maybe there's people in that space yet they're just about to walk into it mm-hmm. and I wonder if that's I mean be, I, I know you're a set designer but if we can bracket that and just think about the the pieces you made in specific like are you making a space that like people are wandering in and out of and picking up this broom or that orange or I mean it's it's all about narrative yeah. I mean all of my work comes down to a story um so I have these, I do have these objects that repeat themselves throughout all of my work. And so to me, they tell a story. So I have brooms in my pieces a lot. And that comes from me using brooms in my performance pieces. Um, 
I had uh, James Cowan, who you've worked with. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. He was in a few of my performances, and he is an amazing physical actor. He's very tall. The best and, top dancer. Yeah, I mean, he's amazing. <laughs> he was just in um, a production of Peter and the Starcatcher that I designed. And he, every single performance he was in of mine, he had a push broom, which comes from the idea of the person sweeping somebody off the stage. Mm-hmm. Um, and so I took that push broom that was a real object and I turned it into a set pe- uh, model piece. And so it's in almost every uh, body of work. So I think, I think there's only one broom in that. In that model, and so I remember exactly where yeah. it is. Yeah, me too. Like it's yeah. So that boom was very—it's uh, vivid. Yeah, and the boom box is mm-hmm. again another performance piece that has been in a lot of my performances, and then they're in the model pieces, and they were in the—you know—they were in the last body of work that I think you saw. There was a boom box, mm-hmm. and um, the oranges repeat themselves, and there's a little like gym bag that repeats itself, and those are actually like those pieces are the pieces that remain in half-inch scale. While a lot of the other architectural elements are not scaled anymore, mm-hmm. like they might be loosely a half inch scale, but like my friend uh, came to the gallery the other day and he was talking about being a person, talking about making these into actual models or uh, not models, actual sets, mm-hmm. and how fun it would be because he knows he knows that there are scales chairs the orange chairs which is another thing that I have in all of my pieces and that is thanks to Angel Herrera who made the orange vinyl chairs at CalArts into his sets at school and then I stole his model chair and then that's why they're in them because I stole his hey, model Angel. pieces <laughs> I just want to call that out um, so he saw he was like that would be so great if like this was in scale and then like this whole other part of the there, there's this like dressing room that like suddenly the the countertops are just like too high and the bench is too big for a person and how exciting that would be if you actually made them into a set. Mm-hmm. And maybe it's just more exciting as a conversation to have in the gallery as, as opposed to an actuality. Like I just, it's maybe not... Maybe you have to do it so we can see. I don't know. <laughs> yeah. I mean, somebody has to give me money. <laughs> I mean, and that also like comes down to like models being really affordable. Yeah. I mean, they're not that affordable. You have to still have to buy the foam core, but... Much more affordable than doing it in one to one. Much more affordable. Yeah. There's something about like what you were saying about these, all these different um, theatrical tropes that make their way into the exhibition. Like the thing that most struck me was the music maybe not the most but one of the things that really struck me mm-hmm. was the music that was playing from behind this closed door and you didn't it just it was so evocative and it really spoke to these sort of missing bodies and you could imagine that people were dancing <laughs> in another room and there was something uh I didn't know if it was accidental or intentional but it it, it I would had I been um forced to choose I would have thought it was intentional mm-hmm. um it definitely felt theatrical yeah so and I don't know I, that's not a question it's a comment I'm not sure what I want to say by that I do I just felt like yeah I guess all the different aspects of theater seem to be like working their way into the exhibition and 
yeah, the one thing that was missing for me was lighting. Yeah, I was actually going to say that. Which you had already, you actually did mention earlier. Yeah, so the idea of having track lighting perfectly positioned on the on the mod on the on the sculptures uh, was something that I was like, well, this is a gallery, so that's how the lighting is going to be, and having the especially the installation, like I think I'd even like talked about getting like pool lighting for the tub and so there would be like a disco light Mm -hmm. and it was hard for me to allow the gallery lighting to take over and be the lighting source. Mm -hmm. I had actually, you know, I had applied for an emergency grant for this show and one of the line items was that I would actually have a lighting designer, the the lighting designer that I worked with on the last show that I did at Sun Assembly. I didn't ask her, but I put her in the, (laughs) I put her in the grant (laughs) anyway, to come in and light the pieces. Um, because I wanted it to be theatrical and I wanted it to be, and you know, you can make the argument that a lot of theatrical things are very manipulative and manipulate the space in that way. Mm-hmm. Um, and the sound was something that I thought that I could bring. And also I love sound design more than I love lighting design. Mm. Um, and I love sound designers. I mean, that's one of the reasons that I worked with Mikael and the last piece that I did in the machine project was mm-hmm. because uh, I wanted the sound to be as important. And that also comes to the idea of like uh, theater, but also radio. And I had done a radio play on Kei Chung and like having this like idea of like uh, how sound is so um, effective so simply. Mm-hmm. Um, and I always want my pieces to have music and I always want my pieces to have some activation through sound. And I think I had made this joke about these animations that I've been doing that I've just been posting on Instagram that one of the reasons I like doing these animations that I do, you know, kind of naively, like kind of, uh, you know, awkwardly with my, excuse me, these stop motion animations that I do with my models is that I can pick a, you know, really dramatic, like, you know, 1980s track, like I used Forever Young by Alphaville on one of them. Like I could make it really, like I could have it swell yeah and there's nothing I like better than like in a movie where the soundtrack kicks in and it comes in like this pop song comes in and you're just I just I I mean I don't know maybe it's a little simplistic but I just I I love I love it I think that lighting can be just as um evocative and powerful and emotional well I think I mentioned before that like not knowing that much about lighting designer is a weakness that I have since I just yeah, I mean, maybe you should make a all light piece or a piece that's. Really yeah. <laughs> <laughs> that would be a challenge. Well, yeah. Emily, talk about sound, sound and light in your work. I mean, those are huge, huge elements in all of those mm-hmm. performance pieces, which yeah. is what I'm talking about. Yeah, yeah. Like, how do you approach that? I, it really depends on the piece. Um, with the seed eaters, for example, because the piece is made to be presented in a different city every time it is presented um, and performed by the people in that city, I will work with a different musician in every city. So there really is this sort of um, uh, particular, very specific spin on the sound according to who who I can find in that in that space. Um, I tend to look for for that piece percussionists like experimental percussionists 
Um, and lighting is very much, like I think about it very much in terms of the context. So it's funny what you were saying about like, okay, we're in a gallery, so let's light things like we would in a gallery. I, I tend to do, okay, we're in a gallery, so let's light things as if we were in a theater. <laughs> <laughs> okay, we're in a theater, let's light things as if we're in a gallery. I mean, there's really, in the, which is just more than anything, um, an indication of my kind of ridiculous stubbornness to to be the Stradler. Mm-hmm. But um, yeah, I think it's just, I, I, I do think a lot about lighting. I think a lot about sound, but it's, it's, uh, yeah, it just really depends on on the piece and what it's calling for. Sure, and the, just the context in general. Yeah, right? yeah. Yeah, which I think we've been kind of talking about this entire time, mm-hmm. straddling different worlds and all of these worlds. I know it's kind of a problem when some any of these worlds like don't realize that everything that do, that they're doing is a performance. Mm-hmm. Like if it's the opening of an art show, even if it's painting on paintings on the wall, like that's a performance. If it's a poet reading into a microphone, that's a performance. Mm. You know, if it's models in a gallery and like you're walking around, that's still kind of a performance of so the all those things that theater has and depends on. Like those are crucial elements. And it's to, good at. Right, and it's mm-hmm. great, has perfected over many years. Like, those are all crucial elements to all these things, right? Mm-hmm. I'm just trying to bring all the forms together. <laughs> I, that just, I started grinning because it reminds me of, I was talking to a friend who said that her, I think it was her niece was going on her, like, first date with this boy, and they went to a, a gallery opening, and she knows nothing about art. And so she was saying to her niece, listen, don't worry, just go up to the piece, go pretty close, look at it for way too long look at it like for way longer than you think you need to look at it and then nod your head and walk away oh, solid. <laughs> and, and i feel like i'll never look at <laughs> going to an exhibition the same way <laughs> speaking of performance <laughs> well dorothy emily thank you so much for thank joining you guys us for being it was thank a pleasure you for having thanks us. so much it was really fun You've been listening to The People on K-Chung, 1630 AM. I'm Matthew Timmons. And I'm Ben White. We're hosted by Insert Blanc Press, and you can find us on the iTunes Store or Stitcher or SoundCloud or Overcast or Google Podcasts or anywhere else where you get your podcasts. Remember to give us a rating and review if you have the opportunity. That'd be great. And our interstitial music, as always, is Ock Fifth by Lewis Keller. And now we're going to go out with a song from L.A. band Flatworms, self-titled release. Uh, that's two words, flat worms. Uh, you can find them on Bandcamp at flatwormsmusic.bandcamp.com. And uh, if you're listening to this show now, you can see them at Zebulon here in L.A. this Friday, July 20th, 2018. And for our listeners in the U.K., you can see them on August 30th in Salisbury at the Larmer Tree Gardens and on September 2nd at O2 Academy Bristol. Uh, we're going to hear the first track off their 2017 release, and the name of the song is Motorbike. Okay. 
day of my life. It's like a pause. Oh, <laughs> okay, so no joke. <laughs> <laughs>